So I actually ended up making a couple thousand dollars buying the house, like going through the transaction <laughs> after all the like title fees and that sort of thing and all the inspection costs and whatever. We ended up making a couple thousand dollars just through the transaction of purchasing the house. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Financial Independence Show, where today, Justin and I are going to walk you through some of the mistakes, some of the things we learned, just all the things we wish we knew when we purchased our first property. So let me check in with Justin and see what's going on. Justin, what's up, man? Hey, Cody. Uh, this weekend, you may have heard me talk about before this Frontier Pass, this like one year of getting to fly for essentially free. Like there's a few little fees and stuff you got to pay for. But I actually sent Cody, you know, I sent you the screenshot earlier today where uh, I used it to go to Denver this weekend. It was 29 bucks round trip. So not too bad. Both flights were a uh, direct one way, you know, kind of flight. So it actually allowed me to get out there and have a good bit of time because I got there Saturday at like noon. So I didn't have to fly out super early. And then I got an early flight back on Monday. So I was back home and set up before my, my workday would start. So it's kind of a perfect little sub 48 hour trip. Got to get out there, do some hiking, visit with some friends, visit with some coworkers that I never get to see in person. So good first little use of it. It just became active this past week. So I'm pretty happy to already get some use out of it. I mean, yeah, 30 bucks to go. That's like a, that's like a bus ticket to go from Austin, Texas to Denver. That's a no brainer. So yeah, it's cool that you're getting some use out of it. I'm excited to do the end of the year recap next year and see all the places that you went on that Frontier Pass. You're probably going to be like <laughs> the person who used it the most. I'm, I wonder if there's like a leaderboard or something like that. That'd be interesting to see. But for me, I spent the weekend or some of the weekend in Boston. And it was funny. A couple of weeks ago, I went on this like tiki boat tour for a friend who was launching this tiki boat, like a soft launch in April. It was cold. It was better weather this weekend. And we did another little boat tour. It's like a pedal boat. It's like BYOB. There's 16 people that could fit on it. One of our friend's birthdays. And so it was a ton of fun. We basically just, you know, you don't really have to pedal. It's mostly just hanging out on the river, being with friends. So we got to do that. Then we went out to some karaoke, had an awesome night. And then actually the night before, I'm a huge Mexican food fan. I do like a good margarita. We did enjoy Cinco de Mayo a little bit. And then on Sunday, kind of just took it easy, got some things done around the house. And now we're back to the work week. But let's get into this episode. It's one that we've been talking about for a long time, Justin. And it's, again, all the stuff that we didn't know when we first purchased a house. And it's funny because we're guys who are literally interviewing people who have bought and bought and wow, who have purchased hundreds of properties, thousands of properties, hit financial independence super early. And then when you go and do the thing, you're like, how did I not know this stuff? <laughs> there were just so many things, so many parts of the process that I didn't know. I know you told me that you didn't know. So let's kind of take it from the top. I think since we're a personal finance podcast, Maybe let's start with like what you can afford because a lot of numbers get thrown around. Some people may have heard like the 3.5 with the FHA and 0% down with the VA loan and then investment properties or other percentages and taxes, insurance, all this different stuff. I guess I'll let you kick it off, Justin, because you had like one of the sweetest deals ever. And if we do have any military or ex-military who can get a VA loan by some means, my God, please take advantage because you're one of the only people I know who got a house for free, basically. (laughs) Yeah, for me, it was kind of like a double whammy on the both having the VA loan, which allowed me to get the house with no money down and also not have to pay any PMI. Like that's the big deal there is the also not having to pay the PMI. And it was interesting because when I first went to purchase the house, they weren't going to allow me to use the VA loan. Like the seller wasn't going to accept the offer because 
they were a flipper and apparently they had had some issues in the past because the VA adds a couple more steps into the process. But I actually just put together a really thoughtful email and I did the math for them to show them the opportunity cost. Like if I sank that money into the house versus getting to invest it and over the lifetime, like how much money they were costing me by me having to pull that money out and put it into the house versus leaving it in the market. And so they ended up changing their mind. So I was glad I did that. And then on top of that, we also had a a family friend who was our realtor. And one thing I honestly didn't know when you're going to buy a house is that the seller is going to pay that full like 6% of the the house price, like 3% going to their realtor and 3% going to the buyer's realtor. It's not always true. Sometimes there's different versions of that, but I didn't know that was kind of the traditional way that goes down. And since they're a family friend, they hooked us up and gave us one of those percentage points back after closing. So I actually ended up making a couple thousand dollars buying the house, like going through the transaction <laughs> after all the like title fees and that sort of thing and all the inspection costs and whatever. We ended up making a couple thousand dollars just through the transaction of purchasing the house. So if you're in Justin's shoes, again, if you're military, my God, please do something similar to that. Even if you can't get the point back because you don't know a realtor. You're still going to get a house for super, super cheap. You don't have PMI. So if you have a VA loan access, absolutely, please go for it. You can buy an investment property, kind of like a house hack. You can buy just like your regular residence. For folks like me who are not military, you have some different options. So if you're going to live in the property, and this kind of depends on where you're at, depending on lenders, I'm going to get kind of into the weeds here. Some lenders will let you get an FHA loan on only a single family residence. Some lenders will let you get up to a quadplex with that 3.5% down. Totally depends. And we're going to kind of talk about shopping around and the importance of that. I think we've already kind of talked about that a bunch on this show. It's like no matter what you're doing, whether you're getting insurance or buying a house or getting a lender, always see as many options as you can and then go with the best one. So that's kind of the the golden option for most people is getting that FHA loan 3.5% down, which means the down payment on a $300,000 house is $10,500. Way less than what most people think. A lot of people are like, oh, you need 20% down, 60K. That's just not true. The other one that you could get that a lot of people don't actually know about, and some people don't want to go FHA or they don't qualify for FHA for whatever reason, you can actually get traditional loans for owner-occupied properties for as low as 5% down. Again, this is for owner-occupied properties. I'm going to get to investment properties in a second. But if you're planning on living in a house and for whatever reason, you don't want to get FHA, you don't qualify for FHA, some banks will let you do 5% down. They're a little bit harder to find in the time that we're recording this, which is 2023, but they were pretty abundant like one or two years ago. I know there's still some banks that do it. And then last but not least, investment properties. Again, if you're doing something like a house hack and you are an owner occupant, you're actually living in one unit of the duplex or one unit of the triplex or quadplex, some lenders will let you put like really low money down, like 3.5% with FHA or 5% or somewhere 10%. Some do not let you do that and they'll be like, okay, you're going to put the full 20% down. And if you are not living in the property, I have never met a bank that will go lower than 15%. And that was like a crazy anomaly. So if you're, again, I know I just threw a lot of information at you there, but if you're looking to live in the home, you can go 0% with a VA, you can go 3.5 with FHA, you can go 5% plus with traditional if you're living in the home. And if you're not living in the home, you're looking at like usually 20% plus, but again, I've seen 15 in like a crazy scenario. Just one more thing with the the VA one, you can also buy a a quadplex with that one. So if you're going through the VA route, you can also buy something that you can essentially use as an investment property. You do need to live in it, but you can buy up to a quadplex. VA loans where it's at, man. 
Okay, so that is a very long-winded way of explaining what you're expecting for a down payment, but that is not all of the costs associated with buying a house typically. So like Justin mentioned, it's it's very typical for the seller to pay things like the real estate agent fees, which typically is about 3% per agent. Buying agent gets three, selling agent gets three. But there's a lot of other random closing costs that are associated with buying a house. There's like title fees, attorney fees, insurance, loan fees, like all of these random things that add up. And typically the ballpark you'll see online is anywhere from two to 6%. So using like 4% as a nice round number, just so we can kind of get like a real, a real number here. Let's say you bought a $300,000 house in, I'll use Massachusetts, for example, because property taxes and insurance are going to vary by what state you're in. You buy a $300,000 house at 3.5% in Massachusetts. You're looking at a $10,500 down payment. And then you're looking at just over 11,000, 11,500-ish in closing costs. So you're going to need like around 20 grand, a little bit over 20 grand saved up if you're again in Massachusetts looking for a $300,000 property that you can get an FHA loan on. Just to throw some real numbers at you and that for those who are listening later on, that is at 7% interest rates, which is pretty average right now in May 2023. Yeah, and then there's a couple other things I know we'll talk about like inspection process, that sort of thing. And there's other little fees that just kind of can add up on you if you're not thinking about. So I know at least when I bought a house, like I had to get insect inspection. And, you know, then I also wanted to get like the pipes inspected just to make sure there was nothing wrong with those. And you might want to get like a foundation inspection. Like those things are going to be extra on top of just your generic inspector fee, getting these like third parties to come out and inspect very specific specialized things. Yeah. Yeah. There's just all these little costs. So make sure you have like a couple extra thousand saved up over what you're anticipating because there's always miscellaneous costs that come up and it can come and bite you. Okay, before we get into inspections and all that stuff, because that's kind of like after you have a property that you have put an offer in and they've already accepted the offer, let's talk about setting up to make that first offer. So this is stuff that I didn't know. I learned on the fly. And we, again, we had talked to so many people on the podcast, but I didn't know a lot of this. So the first thing I think is most important, and Justin, we can just riff and go back and forth. I think determining your criteria is really important. Like I want a house that is this size, whether you're filtering by square footage or number of bedrooms, number of bathrooms, things like that, the the style of house that you want, the zip codes that you want it in. Make sure you kind of just have an understanding because it's going to make it a lot easier. It's, it's really overwhelming. I see friends do this. We'll just like go on Zillow in Massachusetts and see what houses are for sale. And it's just like so overwhelming because I haven't really dialed in on the criteria. So when we were first looking for a house, we were looking for like a house hack investment property. So we were looking for like multifamily with like this many beds and this many baths in these zip codes under this price point. And that leads me to my next thing. But Justin, I'll let you chime in if you have anything else to add. I just... I think determining your criteria is really, really crucial in helping you like kind of weed through the BS and find at least start touring properties that are right for you and what you're looking for. Yeah. I mean, that'll certainly help you tighten the scope of how many houses you're going to look at. It'll also help you from kind of making a rash decision and buying a house that turns out not to be exactly what you want. I think going and looking at as many houses as you possibly can. There's also, you know, like some people when they're buying a house, they might be considering totally different states even or like very completely different regions. And it's not something that we did, but I think it's a really cool method is like just renting an Airbnb in the neighborhood that you're thinking about buying a house in and living there for like two weeks. Because sometimes in our heads, we think that's where we want to be, but we're just, there, it's kind of, you don't know what you don't know. And so taking it for a test run by just getting a rental, a short-term rental in a situation like that, I think is a really good idea. Yeah, that's super smart. 
So after you determine your criteria, and the reason I say determine your criteria is this is actually, once you dial that in, you're going to give that information to a real estate agent. You might know one, you might have a friend, you might have a family member. If not, get some local recommendations, like ask your friends around, ask other people in the area, any groups that you're in, hey, who's a good real estate agent that's going to really vouch for me and find the right properties? Because they can actually punch in that exact criteria into the MLS, the multiple listing service, and you can get set up on auto emails. So every morning when I first started looking for houses back in 2020, I would get an email with all of the new listings that met my criteria. And so I could just look through, I'd literally wake up, I'd start scrolling on my phone and I'd be like, oh, like it usually be like three or four properties because I was looking in a pretty small area. And I would just kind of do the first pass. I would see, is this worth looking into a little bit more? Does the pictures look good? Like what does the setup look like? How is the condition of the house? And so having that setup with a real estate agent was so much easier than me, again, going on like Zillow every day, logging in and just like, it was just automatic. It just came into my inbox. I clicked on it. I scrolled through the properties and see if any caught my eye. And as you start to get those things emailed to you, you're going to start to kind of probably notice some patterns and you're going to start to be able to build what you know people call comps, like comparable other homes that are very similar to that one. And I think that's really important because different segments, even in the same zip code, but especially like slightly difference in zip codes can really drive differences in prices. And you just want to make sure you're getting like a fair deal in the case that especially if you want to go and, and resell it or just so that you're not overpaying. I like built a complete like spreadsheet and started looking at like, okay, what did some of these houses actually end up selling for? Because at the time when we bought ours, like it was almost unheard of to be able to buy a house at list price. Like everything was kind of going a little over. So I had to figure that in, try to get a reasonable idea of like price per square foot. But I was trying to really use very similar comps. So like houses built around the same time. You know, if it's a single floor, like we wanted a single level home. So I was trying to only do comps on those. I was trying to do comps in this, you know, a fairly tight area. Also, as like I started to get closer to thinking like, okay, here's one I might actually want to put an offer in. I didn't want to comp it against a house that was had something like really different that could really change the price as in like a cul-de-sac. Like that will increase the cost of a home. So it's not really fair to compare it to, to that house that's in a cul-de-sac. Um, there's also like the schools that it's associated with. So for some people, like you know, even if you don't have kids, that's going to change the value of your home based on which school district someone who would live in that house would go to. So the more you can lock in as far as like what Cody was saying, like knowing exactly what you want is really going to help you also compare against other houses to make sure you're getting a fair deal. And that is a perfect segue into the next part of this whole process, which is getting pre-qualified slash pre-approval. Because if you don't know what you want and you are pre-qualified or pre-approved for a certain amount, and then you start looking way out of your price range or you just want to kind of know and understand what's the range in price of the houses that you're looking for. So when you go and get like pre-qualified, pre-approved, you'll go to X bank or X credit union or some online mortgage lender. You'll punch in all of your details. You'll upload a ton of documents. Actually, quick side note. I was so unorganized before I applied for my first pre-approval. And so I had to like fish documents out of the craziest places. I did not have like a neat Dropbox file with all of my previous tax returns and all the other things I would need. So if you're like me, please get that in order before because you're just going to be like scrambling like a madman trying to get all those docs into the lender. But once you do get all those docs, you submit them to all these different lenders. We, again, definitely recommend shopping around because different lenders can give you, you know, different interest rates and they might have different discount points they can give you and all these different things and just different terms. So definitely make sure you shop around and then go with the most favorable one, typically the lowest interest rate, sometimes not, but usually the lowest interest rate. 
And once you have that pre-approval or pre-qualification letter, and sorry, again, on a quick side note, pre-qualification is like the thing before pre-approval. Like they don't run your credit. It's kind of like a very, very basic thing. You can't even put an offering on a house, I don't think, with a pre-qualification letter. But a pre-approval, they like run your credit, they run all your financials, and then they're like, Justin, you're approved for $400,000. Like that is the maximum amount of house that you can buy. And so, yeah, once you have that letter in hand, the pre-approval letter, then you can start putting offers in. But it's really important to shop around, get all your financials in order, know exactly what you're looking for. And then if you're looking at houses that are all 500,000 and you only are approved for 400,000, then you're going to have to start getting creative. That's a bit of a problem. Yeah, and thinking about mortgage rates, it reminds me of another thing that I honestly didn't know, and it w- actually was part of that email to the to the sellers about like, hey, kind of going to really screw me over if you don't allow me to use a VA loan. Is it traditionally a VA loan? It's also going to have lower interest rates than everyone else will get. So my interest rate was almost a full percentage point lower than what it would have been if I would have had to go through like a traditional lender situation. I mean, I still went through a traditional lender, but it was a VA loan, which just allows you to get, like I said, for me, it was almost a full percent lower and 1% on a mortgage rate can make a huge difference. Absolutely. Okay. So this one, I brought up, I have a little bullet point list over here on the left-hand side of my screen. This one's kind of bundled in with a lot of other ones. And this depends on the state, but the next one is getting a real estate attorney. Now we'll be right back after a quick word from one of our sponsors. Today's sponsor is one I use on a daily basis at my company, Gold City Ventures. That is the sound of a sale in your Shopify store. But did you know that Shopify now also powers in-person selling? Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store or small business. Accept payments, manage inventory, they have everything. Shopify brings together your in-person and online sales business into one source of truth, one dashboard, everything in one place. You know exactly what's going on. And now they have all these customization options. They have plug and play tools you can integrate with Instagram or TikTok or wherever. You can take your payments by phone or by tablet. Shopify makes it easy. Plus, if you have any questions, their support team is there to help you. I know we have a lot of entrepreneurs in this audience, and Shopify POS just breaks down that barrier to accepting payments with your business. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash show, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash show to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash show. Now back to the show. You have might have a real estate agent that you're friends with that recommends their attorney and they work with them all the time. And that might be great. But I just want to quickly harp on the importance of having a good real estate agent because real estate agents, if they're good, if they're doing a lot of transactions, they can recommend an awesome attorney to close for you. They can recommend a great accountant. They can recommend all of the contractors that you might need, like the plumbers, the electricians, instead of you like randomly scouring Google and hoping you can find the best one and creating a spreadsheet like your agent, if they're a really good agent, might just have all of that info at their disposal ready to give to you. So I cannot stress enough the power of having a good agent. And yeah, back to the attorney thing. Depends on the state. Some states have title companies. Some states have attorneys. Either way, you're going to need some kind of like legal representation to get this deal closed and just make sure that it's a company that's trustworthy, hopefully not super expensive. You don't want to go with like some premium option for your first house ever especially if it's not too complicated and you're just buying a single family home, you don't need to be paying way more than the comps out there. So again, it's all about doing your due diligence. But yeah, if you have a good agent, they can kind of just like feed you all of these other players on your team. And it's like having an awesome head coach. Yeah, definitely second that. I mean, I know for our situation, it'd be like, okay, we need to get somebody here to do an insect inspection. It's like, all right, here's the three options that I would choose from in this order. 
they offered up that list to me just so I could go and double check like Google reviews and things like that if I wanted to, but it was super seamless and easy. I didn't have to go and like you said, scour the internet and wonder like, am I picking the right one? It was somebody that they had previous experience with and had worked with many times. So it wasn't a question of whether or not it was a, a good person. They knew it was a good person. All right. Well, now that you got all of that in order, assuming you followed all the steps we've been talking about so far, now you can start touring. And I know Justin before, super important that you mentioned is get in reps. Please do not just like see a property that pops up in your email that you get from the MLS and you're like, I love that property. And then you tour that one property, you put an offering on it, get some reps in. Even if you love that first property that you see and you want to put an offer in, fine, but still go and tour a bunch of properties after because you just don't know what you don't know. There's so many things I learned just from going through the reps, seeing how the agents walked us through the property, learning to ask the right questions. Because again, if it's your first time doing anything, you're not going to be that good at it. Like you have to get some reps in touring properties, looking out for certain things like, oh, when there's a cracked beam in the basement, that probably means there's maybe a foundation issue or like this boiler looks like it's about to explode. And I wouldn't have known that during my first walkthrough. So like there's so many little things that you pick up on after iterations and iterations and walkthroughs and walkthroughs. And I think it was probably our 15th or 20th walkthrough where we ended up putting an offer in on a property and getting it. So we put some reps in and actually, I don't think I've told this story before. We put in an offer on a property. Like it was like our third or fourth one that we saw. It had like these like wavy floors And I had a friend who didn't know that much about real estate. And in retrospect, it was a horrible idea to listen to them. But they're like, oh, yeah, you should be able to even out the floors. No biggie. And it was like real bad. Like you could put a marble in the corner and it would be in the other corner in like two seconds. (laughs) And so we were actually going to close on that property. And it was just a lot of other wonky things. I mean, that's not the worst issue ever. It was just weird. But we ended up backing out of that property. Thank God there was more issues than we could have hoped for. There was like all this old knob and tube wiring, but it was just because we were rookies. We didn't put in the reps. We didn't exactly know what we were doing. We put in an offer. It got accepted. We ended up pulling out after the inspection and we're going to talk about inspections shortly, but yeah, do your due diligence, get your reps in because you don't want to shoot yourself in the foot and make a rash decision and then regret it six months or a year later. But after you do get your reps in and you have really dialed in on the type of house that you want, you know the questions to ask, Then it's time to make some offers. And that is when you're going to kind of choose the lender. So that's why we're doing this in order. That's why you want to get the pre-approvals. That's why you want to get those letters in before you start touring houses, because most properties actually won't let you make an offer unless you can send in a pre-approval letter. They're not just going to let you make a $500,000 offer on their property. And then there's no bank behind that. Most people don't have $500,000 just sitting there in cash. So After you start making some offers and one gets accepted, that's when you're like, okay, you know, this bank or okay, this mortgage or this credit union, we're going with you. You guys have the most favorable terms. And that's when the ball starts rolling. And Cody, one last thing about the the whole lender situation is also remember that the, yeah, you want to pick somebody who's got a really favorable rate, but also the first rate they tell you, don't just take that and then compare it against the next one. Like most things in life, it's a negotiation. And so you can kind of push back on them, let them know, hey, this person's offered me this rate. Like, what can you do? And kind of get a bidding war going because most of the time, or at least in my case, I was able to see better offers after I pushed them a bit versus what their first offer to me was. Yeah, that's a really good point. All of this is negotiable. You mentioned the closing costs. That's negotiable. It's not always a seller that pays a lot of the closing costs. Like I've had situations where as a seller, I had the buyer pay some closing costs just because I I was like, hey, might as well negotiate. We'll see what happens and got the some of the costs down. So yeah, always negotiate. Do not take the final rate. Do not take the final price as gospel. 
you can always negotiate, even on the house price. We're going to talk about that in a second too. Once accepted, highly, highly recommend doing an inspection. I know it's mandatory with the VA, but a few years ago, like people were just waiving inspection on everything. And I think a lot of people got burned because you know their pipes burst or the sewage line was cracked or all these crazy things that you would have found with certain types of inspections or even just a general inspection. And people just didn't want to do them because they really, really wanted a property. So that's one of the first things you're going to be booking an inspection. And this goes back to the real estate agent. They can hook you up with like the best inspectors with the best rates who really, you know, dig into the details for you and make sure that you know exactly what's wrong with that house. If there's stuff wrong with that house. Also keep it in mind that like, depending on how you've set this up, like most people have about a month to close on a house. But especially in a hot market, sometimes those were even lower because people thought like, well, maybe I'll get my offer accepted if I say I'll close in 14 days. And then keep in mind, right, like you've got some money on the line that you don't get back if you end up backing out in certain cases. So if you're in one of those situations, not only do you need to get it inspected and maybe that's multiple different vendors, but you've got to get it done in that window of time. So that's another reason, again, why having a good realtor who's got these people already lined up and got you a few options is a real blessing because it's going to make you a lot faster and make sure you don't miss any of those deadlines or don't feel like you're kind of in a corner where you've got to skip one in order to make that closing date. And another thing that happens very shortly after that offer is made and accepted is the appraisal. This is not something that you have to do or that your real estate agent even does. The bank itself will actually send an appraiser out. And basically what they're doing is making sure that the property is worth what you're paying for it. So for example, if you put in an offer on a property for 400,000 and then the bank comes and appraises it and they're like, actually, this property is only worth 300,000. They're not going to give you the full loan value they're looking for. And this is important for a couple of reasons. So one is if the appraisal comes in way lower than the offer price that was accepted, then you're going to have to either look for additional ways to get that down payment, whether that's through like a second mortgage or a hard money lender, or just like wait and sit on the sidelines and save up some more or look for a different property. Or you can actually use that as negotiating leverage. And I've done this before where we had a property under contract for 325000 It appraised for 300000 And we're like, listen, like we're not going to be able to come up with the gap I don't think we said we're not going to be able to. We worded it craftily where it wasn't a lie because we could have paid it if we had to. But <laughs> we were like, we don't want to pay this gap between what the bank is going to give us for the loan and what we are contracted for for this property. And we actually ended up getting $10,000 off that sale price. We knocked it from three twenty-five dollars down to three fifteen dollars just because we had the appraisal. So it wasn't like we're making up numbers. We also had the inspection as well. And we used the, the inspection and the appraisal as negotiating leverage to be like, these things need to be fixed. The bank's not going to give us all this money for this purchase. And so it ended up working in our favor. And just knowing that, knowing that you can use those tools to negotiate can end up lowering that purchase price for your first home. And just to make that one little piece really clear, say you put an offer in for 500000 it's appraised for 300000 and then you're thinking about like your down payment situation and you're going to do, say, the 3.5%. It's not just 3.5% of the 500000 or you would have to cover that entire gap plus the 3.5% of the base part. So three and a half percent of the 300,000 plus that full $200,000 gap. So really keep that in mind if, and consider that and make sure that you're confident that the appraisal is going to come in pretty close to what you're offering. Yeah. As long as it's reasonable, I'm going to say, and I'm going out on a limb here because I don't know, but I feel like a lot of these appraisers are kind of in cahoots with the bank. Like the bank wants to lend you the money. They make money with the interest that they're giving you. 
I've never had an appraisal come in like so crazily low. The only one that actually ever came in under was that one property, the one that came in at 300 for 325, but they've got to be in cahoots. Like, (laughs) you know, the baker, the bakers are making money. The appraiser is making money when you get approved for a bigger loan. So it's like, you usually don't have to worry about it. So I don't want people to think like we're fear mongering and like, oh my God, I don't even (laughs) want to look for a house now because I'm going to cover a $200,000 gap. No, it's more like they're going to over appraise. Yeah, and like what you said about they're probably in cahoots. It's funny at how many people the appraisal comes in like exactly pretty much like within a few hundred dollars <laughs> yeah. or a few thousand dollars of what you offered. It's like, how did they get it hmm. that close? Interesting math. Let me see the calculations there. But yeah, don't worry too much about that. It's just it's just something worth noting. And it's negotiating leverage if it does come in low or if you have like a long inspection report. Another property we bought, we were contracted for 185000 it had a bunch of stuff that was wrong with it. It was a duplex and kind of a crappy area, but it needed like $25,000 worth of work. And by needed, I mean, it would be nice if it had 25,000. It probably needed 10, but we had our contractor write up the proposal for how much everything would cost, 25 grand, gave it back to the seller. We're like, listen, can you take some off of this? Cause it's going to need a decent amount of work. Ended up coming down 15,000, got the duplex for 170 K. So it never hurts to ask. And just having these chips on your side of the table is great negotiating leverage. All right. So once both of those things or all your inspections come back good, the appraisal comes back good, you're cool with the bank. This is one thing that I was really close to screwing up before is making sure you have homeowners insurance. If you don't have an insurance agent already, again, goes back to having a good real estate agent. They might have someone or maybe you could use the same person that you use for auto or someone else in your family. Just make sure you have an insurance agent. You can go shop online, but it's just easier, in my opinion, with an agent who can like shop all of these different insurance companies at once. But you have to have homeowners insurance on that property at the closing table. And I remember one day, it was one day before closing. And I'm like, oh my God, we forgot to get insurance for this property we're about to close on. So I hit up my insurance agent, who's a good friend now because we bought multiple properties. I'm like, hey, like we need this today. And she's like, I got you. And she ended up getting us a couple quotes. We picked one and we had insurance for the property closing the next day. But that one almost burned me. And it was something I didn't know when we bought that first property. I just I just had no idea. I didn't know you needed your own homeowner's insurance. <laughs> yeah, that's another that's another situation where like having a good realtor definitely helped me out because I honestly didn't know that. But they were walking me through like a checklist the whole time. They're like, okay, and this is the next step. And this is the next step. So <laughs> yeah, so if you're using your uncle as your realtor who's done like one transaction in his life, he might not know this stuff. So <laughs> that's why you're listening to this episode. All right, so once all of that other stuff is done, then you have what's called a final walkthrough. This is usually either the day before at night or like the day of when you're literally going to go and sign for the property very shortly after. And this is just like your final sweep. It's like, is everything still look like it did when I first toured the property? Is there anything leaking? Is and the reason I say that, actually, it seems like I have a lot of fun real estate stories as much as people like to say just it's just straight passive income. One time in our final walkthrough, the bathroom pipes above it it was like February had exploded and there's water all over the bathroom floors. We're like, you need to fix this. And so the seller ended up getting it fixed, getting a plumber over there. It was all good, but always do that final walkthrough. Make sure you're looking at everything, looking at every room, making sure everything looks exactly the same as when you went through on that initial walkthrough as you went through with the inspector. And yeah, it just, it's the final check through, it's checking all the boxes. And then the day after that, or that same day is when you go and sign and close on that house. And also when thinking about like that final walkthrough, you know, Cody mentioned some things where, okay, a house needs some work and maybe they lower the price. Another option is though, is sometimes things are wrong and 
they agree to fix it and they're going to you know sign that they are going to fix it they're like contractually obligated to fix these things you want to go in and make sure don't just take their word for it like if this plug-in <laughs> didn't work when you did the inspection or you know this gutter wasn't installed correctly or there wasn't flashing on the roof these are all things that we saw with our house we had a punch list of things that they agreed to fix as part of the negotiation versus them giving us money off and us getting it fixed later. So it was really important for us to go in and just double check all their work. So we are at the closing table now, Justin. We're signing. We're getting the house. The mortgage is all set. If you're getting a mortgage for the first time, it is so many signatures. Your hand is going to be sore after. It is a lot of pages. <laughs> but after that, you own the house. You are closed. There are still some things you need to do. And these are the things that trip me up because I feel like people did not talk about them when we had them on their podcast. I mean, why would they? It's all about just like, I bought this house at this price and it rents for this. And we have a lot of real estate investors on here. The once closed stuff is what screwed me up. So I'll just go through my short little list here, Justin. Let me know if you messed up with any of these. Maybe your agent helped you. One was switch over all utilities. Make sure you know all the utilities that the house has. Like maybe a house has natural gas that you didn't know about, not me or anything. <laughs> um, <laughs> make sure that you switch over all of the different electric accounts. Like if you buy a multifamily, it might have an owner meter. It might have apartment one, apartment two. Those are things that I didn't know and didn't consider. Make sure you're switching over any other miscellaneous utilities. Usually it's electric and natural gas, like the main big two utilities. But then there's things you might have to set up or switch over like cable and Wi-Fi and things like that. And then also kind of related to utilities is setting up your services. So we had our trash bins pulled because I didn't switch that over. And I'm like, oh, great. We don't have trash bins anymore. So make sure you're setting up your trash, your lawn care if you're not doing it yourself or your snow removal if you're not doing it yourself any service that you can think of like it's not going to transfer over from that old owner to you you have to go and set that up yourself then the last one and this is especially important or is something that i was kind of concerned about when we bought our first property because it was a multifamily. was i'm like who has access to that locks on this house like i have no idea so we actually ended up going and hiring a locksmith and he ended up changing all the locks in the house for like 125 bucks. It really wasn't that expensive at the end of the day, like after a huge home purchase. But it was just that peace of mind. I'm like, I have no idea who's lived in these units before. One of them could have gone to jail and then he's coming back and he still has those keys <laughs> on his living room table. Like I, it was just it was an uneasy feeling for me and Lauren. So <laughs> that's a, that was another one. Change the locks. We didn't even think about it. I'd never heard anyone talk about it on a podcast before, but Justin, any of those trip you up or any other ones trip you up, the post-closing stuff? Well, it was funny that you mentioned the trash can thing because what I didn't realize is that we just didn't even have trash bins. And so the previous people must have just taken them because they're supposed to be still with the house. And so I had to go through this whole deal with the city where they had to come and re-deliver trash cans because we just we didn't even have trash cans. And then we also did replace our locks. I kind of, you know, I'm a nerd with my gadget stuff and I wanted something that had the keypad and the Bluetooth and everything anyway. So I was going to change it regardless. But yeah, we definitely did that as well. So that's pretty much everything when it comes to the home buying process. All the things that Justin and I wished we knew. We did a lot of research for this episode. We actually just want to hit on a couple of really frequently asked questions. So Justin, I'll let you kick this one off because I know each of us had a little short list that we wanted to hit. Yeah. So the one thing I kept seeing a lot was trying to understand exactly what is that total cost to, to buy that house. And so we really try to do a good job in this episode of covering all those things. But once you own the home, you know, it doesn't really stop there, especially if you've been living, say, in a small apartment, you go to move into, you know, say you're in like an 1800 square foot home. You may not have beds for each of those rooms. You may not have TVs. You may not have blinds and curtains and 
you know, you might have a lawnmower and you might not, there may be a lot of things that you're not considering that you're going to have to buy kind of right out of the gate. So on top of having that extra money set aside for those random inspections, also just be budgeting for how do you actually turn this house into a home? Definitely. Yeah. It's always good to have some kind of a reserve, whether you're just a homeowner, definitely if you're an investor and need to replace things for tenants, because you might be able to live with something that's messed up for a little while. But if it's a tenant, it might need to be fixed like ASAP. So it's always good to have a nice fat cash reserve just in case your heating system breaks or Justin, I know you just got like foundation repair. There's always random things that pop up with owning. So one of the most common questions I get, and this is especially from people who want to get into real estate for investing is, should I buy a house with my regular name? Should I buy it as Cody Berman or should I buy it as an LLC, like some kind of entity? And this is what I didn't know. So when I first went to purchase a house, I'm like, I'm going to buy it with an LLC for asset protection. And so I go to the banks. I'm like, I'm going to buy a house with this LLC. And they're like, well, that's, you're going to need a commercial loan. Like it's, that's not a person. It's an LLC. And I'm like, what? Like I've heard so many people on podcasts do this. So if you're buying with an LLC, like if you're making that initial purchase with an LLC, you will need to get a commercial loan and commercial loans typically are 25% down. They have higher interest rates. It's just like a lot of negatives. Now the hybrid thing that I did. So what we ended up doing was I didn't purchase in the LLC. I purchased in my name. And if you are an investor and you want like some kind of liability protection, you don't want people to look up that you own the house, you can do what's called a quit claim deed. Now I'm getting really into the weeds here, but basically what that means I buy the house as Cody Berman, close on it, do all that stuff, get the mortgage in my name with a bank because it's favorable rates. I can get a much lower percentage down. And once I actually own the home, I can sign what's called a quit claim deed over to whatever LLC I want to quote unquote own the property. And so then if you had, you know, your LLC own the property and you ran all the expenses and all the income through the LLC, then it just makes more sense because then you can take the, I'm getting really into the weeds here. Then you can take the depreciation of the house against the LLC and it just makes accounting a lot cleaner. That was a very long winded way of saying, I had no idea what the heck I was doing when we first bought a property. I thought I was going to buy it with an LLC. And then I was like, no, I'm not because I don't want to pay 25% down and all these extra fees, bought it in my personal name, did the quick claim. And now everything's nice and clean. But I just, I didn't know any of that stuff. And I feel like I see that question so much online. There's so many different opinions, but that's just, that's just how it unfolded for me. Another thing, Cody, I know I keep talking about like really making sure you're thinking about all the costs that are coming down the road is property taxes and different states are very different. Like in Texas, it's very expensive and that price is probably going to continue to go up year over year over year. And so you got to keep that in mind. Like, yes, your mortgage is fixed, but that part is not. And also the other thing that I really didn't know is like, you'll get on say Zillow and it'll tell you what the property taxes that were on it last year. That may be so far from what you'll have to pay because that person who had it before you might be a 70-year-old disabled person who's lived in the house for 50 years and has been like protected from increases or has all these different exemptions that you don't get when you buy the house. You actually do still keep it unless they take it on a different property for the remainder of that calendar year that you buy it in. But starting that next year, those property taxes could be very different. In a place like Texas, that could be a difference of like, that person was paying $2,500 for the year and you're paying $9,000 for the year. Like it could completely change the math on, uh, you know, you being able to afford it. If you just assume that your property taxes are going to be what the last person paid. Another question I see all the time in forums online is, should you pay off your mortgage earlier? Should you be making extra payments toward your principal? Now, as an investor myself, I am in the absolutely not camp. I'm curious, Justin, though, if you have a different philosophy on this. 
I think at my interest rate, which is like 2.6, I'm in the absolutely not <laughs> phase. Yeah. I mean, you know, if I was somebody with like a 7% interest rate, like, yeah, I don't know. I'd probably, I'd probably consider that. I'd probably think real hard about maybe making some extra payments and putting money there because it's kind of a guaranteed 7% return. Not that that's an amazing return, but at least it's a guaranteed 7% return. But at 26 I would have taken a thousand year loan if they'd let me have it. <laughs> yeah. If I was in your position, I would do that too. But like you said, Cody, this is always one of those big debates. Like, should you pay the house off? And obviously there is different components to it. Like there's a psychological component of you just feeling safe and knowing that that's taken care of. You don't have to worry about it anymore. But purely from a math standpoint, you know, I had someone ask me this one time and they actually had like a 3% pretty low rate on their mortgage. And they said, hey, I got, I still owe $150,000 on the house. Should I just pay it off? And I said, well, let me ask you it this way. If you had $150,000 and I said, if you'll give that to me, I'll guarantee you 3% returns. Like, would you invest with me? They're like, no, like, I'm not going to like 3% returns. I'm like, well, that is what you're signing up for when you give $150,000 away to pay off that house at a 3% interest rate. It's the same thing as saying, I want to lock this money into an investment that is guaranteed at 3%. No more. Most of us would not take that kind of investment. And so if you're being honest with yourself, it probably doesn't make sense. Yeah, definitely doesn't make sense from a mathematical perspective. I do get the people that are like, I just want the peace of mind. I don't I don't want to have any debt at all. I want to be completely debt free. I get it. But you know, it's a that's a psychological decision, not a math decision. What I do want to say, I just think it's so powerful for those who are our age in their 20s, 30s, and you're thinking about investing in real estate, again, beyond just a primary residence, whether you're house hacking or buying investment properties, is really thinking in 30 years from now, if you're getting 30 year mortgages, what that looks like. And it was a couple months probably after I bought those first properties that I conceptualized this. I'm like, okay. And you know, these are investment properties. So I'm running the numbers, like the tenants are paying the mortgage, which is why I'm not a proponent of paying down that mortgage early, because then that's money out of your pocket. Like the tenants are paying monthly, assuming you have good tenants and they're paying down the mortgage. It's no money out of your pocket. But 30 years from now, once that mortgage is gone and you're just paying property taxes and insurance, you might be looking at a plus 75% cash flow on that property. And you know this is how the rich get richer is because they own assets for a long time. The debt goes away. And now all of a sudden, those rental properties that you had that were making you $3,000 a month in cash flow, Fast forward 30 years when you're in your 50s or 60s, again, if you buy a property or properties when you're in your 20s and 30s, now those properties cash flowing $3,000 per month might be more like seven or eight or $9,000 per month. Because don't forget, rents are going up with time as well. So just want to put that there for those who are like thinking about it, but sitting on the sidelines, the earlier you start with anything, with buying property, with investing in the stock market, good things only come with time. So just putting that out there. Well, we hope this episode has been really helpful for everyone. I know we wish we probably would have had this episode for ourselves before we bought our first properties. So maybe this is something you want to go back and reference if now is not the time for you to buy the house and you're thinking about buying one in the future. Maybe you got a buddy who's going through the buying process and is struggling a little bit. You can grab these show notes and the link to share this episode at thefyshow.com slash house. That's thefyshow.com slash H-O-U-S-E. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to another episode of The Fi Show. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support us, the best way to do that is to leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, share this with a friend, and also don't forget, you can find 200 plus episodes and all the information you'd ever want to have about these episodes over at thefyshow.com. Also, don't forget to hit that subscribe button because that way every Wednesday you can have our latest episode delivered straight to your phone. Until next time.
Hey, real quick before you go, I just want to remind you that I have made my personal like budget and net worth tracking spreadsheet available. The very same one that I use to track my net worth from $38,000 to over $1.2 million available for free on our website at thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet. So you can go download that today. That's thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet.